Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a conspiracy influencer based in British Columbia has proclaimed herself the Queen of Canada. How is Romana de Dulos influence harming her subjects? Well, we'll talk about that. Yesterday, we heard some of the most damning testimony to date, putting the Oval Office close to the center of the committee investigating the January 6th riot. Brian J. Karam, political commentator for CNN, will join us to talk about that. And what is Canada's role as NATO embarks on the greatest overhaul since the Cold War? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Explosive new testimony and evidence brought the committee investigating the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol back from their summer recess. The panel heard from a witness who has direct access to the Oval Office. Now that raises more questions, but just how much Donald Trump actually knew. Global's Reggie Cicchini reports. Cassidy Hutchinson was a senior aide to the former president's chief of staff, testifying that Donald Trump was aware of armed people in D.C. on January 6th. He's alleged to have pushed to let them into his rally and to take down metal detectors. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. The panel also heard that Trump lunged at a Secret Service agent in his limo when they wouldn't take him to the Capitol. The leading Republican on the panel also believes they have evidence of witness tampering and obstruction of justice. This is some of the most damning testimony to date, putting the Oval Office closer to the center of the investigation. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. So uh, what are the implications of this? And and I know that the people that have wanted to see you know, a, a day in court and wanted to see justice here have uh, been pining for this. And, and I don't know if it's actually going to happen because of the political climate down in the States. Uh, we'll get some clarity for our next guest. Brian J. Karam, of course, is a political commentator for CNN. He's a columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat and host of a great podcast called Just Ask the Question with some great guests and great topics. Uh, Brian, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. <laughs> Good to be here. <laughs> Another day in the suit, baby. <laughs> as I think you told us the first couple of times, I said, you can't write this stuff. Uh, no, and it, it's, it's if shocking. I wrote it up I mean, as fiction, nobody would believe it. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not going to ask you if you were shocked, uh, but the, the, the clarity with which uh, the witness presented the material, and, and uh, it, it, it was overwhelming. I mean, you know, when the Fox commentators say this is devastating to Trump, uh, you've, you've hit a yes. nerve. I, I agree. Look, I confess. There are a few things I've written recently that I never thought I'd write, at least not in a news story. For example, in my, in my most feverish drug-induced nightmare, I never dreamed <laughs> I'd have to tell people that a former advisor to the president, a decorated retired Army general with years of service to his country under, under his belt, would take the Fifth Amendment when asked by a Republican member of Congress, do you believe in a peaceful transfer of power? Mike Flynn did that. Never did I believe that I'd have to write a sentence with the president of the United States saying, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican Congress. Never thought it. Donald Trump did that. Never thought I'd have to do it. You're right. You couldn't write it as fiction. Nobody would believe it. And it's not when it comes to Donald Trump, it's not necessarily shocking or even surprising, but it is mind numbing. And after a while, you you just look at it and go, how in the hell did this guy ever make it as president? How did he ever get elected? What did we do wrong? And how do we get back from it? 
Talk to us about the witness herself, uh, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson. Uh, I, I know I'm looking at some of the social media posts, which I try not to do a whole lot of, but I mean, you know, in reaction to this, and I guess Trump still has his advocates and, and his acolytes uh, saying that, well, she's a turncoat. You, you don't get to be in the position she was uh, in Mark Meadows' office unless you're a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. And not necessarily well, a Trumpite, but a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. So this, she's, this was not, you know, somebody who was just in there trying to overthrow the administration. No, she was a, a young woman, professional. I remember seeing her in the White House when she was there. Uh, she was quiet. She was uh, dedicated. She was professional. What I saw of her, I didn't have a lot of interaction with her myself. But she is one of those uh, young professionals that inhabit every administration, the ones who do the, the actual legwork. They sit in the room. They listen. They don't have a lot to do with policy. But what they do do is record events and are witness to history. And I, I find it admirable that she stepped forward when, you know, look, Donald Trump, you can disagree. All right. There are people who say, well, you know, the Secret Service never really did what or he never really lunged at the Secret Service in the car. But what's not in dispute in that car was that he wanted he was angry because he couldn't go to an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. That's beyond there. That there's no arguing that point. The Secret Service says that that there are Secret Service agents who say that you know who will tell us uh, that she that he was uh, you know he had lost his sense of reality and he did lunge. Uh, whatever the facts are in that regard, that woman came forward and enlightened us all. That's a very that that girl is as young as my and I say girl she's a young woman but she's as young as my youngest son and I can you imagine. The pressure she was under and the threats that she's gone under, she, you know, deserves a, you know, Congressional Medal of Honor, in my, in my opinion, for coming forward and having it, you know, she didn't ask for this. She was subpoenaed and she came forward and told the truth to the best of her knowledge. The most damning thing to me, and you talk about died in the wool Republican, she said she came in there wanting to champion, you know, um, this president, wanting to do her job. And she said she left, she was personally sad but as an american she was disgusted and if that doesn't tell you something brother that then you're not listening yeah i was trying to put myself in her shoes as she was doing the testimony yesterday too brian and that's the impression i got too here's somebody who was she's not ideologically bent i mean she obviously she was a republican she wanted to see this president succeed uh but as she started to hear snippets from from first of all her boss mark meadows uh, and as we saw the diagram that they presented yesterday, she was only a couple of steps away from the Oval Office herself anyway. So she's hearing these conversations uh, in these offices, in the halls. And, and she's, in her own mind, I got the sense, she's putting this together like, what, what's going on here? Uh, you know, the tone of the conversation here is, wait a second, that's not supposed to happen in America. Right. And when you, you've got Mark Meadows, I, I just want to know what, what was on his cell phone. Every time they're telling him, that, you know, something important is going on. He's looking at his cell phone as if nothing's going on. I Was he playing Angry Birds? What was going on with that guy? I mean, he, he should have been more attentive to the problems. But the simple fact of the matter is, as truth be told, Mark Meadows helped uh, the president instigate some of this. I mean, and that testimony where he said, look, this is what he wants done. This is what we're going to do. Uh, delusional, a complete loss of we pretend that we're a nation of laws, but if we don't hold people accountable for breaking those laws. We're not. Uh, Carl Bernstein, the esteemed journalist, investigative reporter, of course, uh, from the Watergate days, was on CNN last night. I'm sure you watched part of that, too. Uh, and he drew the analogy of, of 
Watergate and this. And he says, you know, when it came right down to it, there were a lot of players, but the guy that was pulling a lot of the strings was Bob Haldeman, the chief of staff. And he says, Mark Meadows is fitting right into that role right now. Clearly, uh, they're, they're trying to ascertain exactly how much of a role he played in this, but uh, his hands are dirty and, and it just seems that he seemed to be, if not in the middle of this, Brian, very close to it. Well, he was in the middle of it. As chief of staff, you are in the middle of every decision. You run, effectively run the White House. The, you know, the president will declare the policies and the chief of staff's job is to implement those policies. He's the essentially the boss of all the cabinet members, the boss of all the staff. So he, he implements policy that the president wants implemented. He's the guy, you know, the, the president waves his hand and says, make it so, number one. And he's, you know, if you want to put the Star Trek analogy, the captain is the president and the number one is your chief of staff and he's the one that gets it done. Uh, so, yeah, he's involved. But I think in the end, I, I think we've seen that there is a grand jury impaneled. Um, we have seen subpoenas for uh, John Eastman, the attorney's uh, phones. Jeffrey Clark uh, got dragged out of his house in his pajamas and thrown on the front lawn. And uh, they searched his uh, belongings in his home. And and I think Rudy Giuliani, I think in the end, what will happen is the uh, Department of Justice will indeed indict and try and flip Meadows Giuliani, Clark, and Eastman, and to go after the president. And I think the president is looking at the former president is looking at several charges, including fraud, uh, obstruction of Congress, obstruction of the United States, inciting a riot. Um, I think he's looking at a multitude of charges, and hopefully he'll be charged because he needs to be charged. This country cannot heal. You know, they say, put things behind you and move on. That's fine. Once you settle this hash, once you settle who's responsible and bring them to justice, then you move on. You don't move on without bringing these people to justice. That's not moving on. That's ignoring the facts. Uh, one of the uh, really interesting pieces of the uh, testimony yesterday, too, from Cassidy Hutchinson was about her boss, about Mark Meadows. Uh, and she confirmed that, yes, he did put an official request in for uh, a pardon. Uh, and that, again, begs the question, why do you need a pardon? Because you know you've done something wrong, and does does that follow function? <laughs> How, why would you ask for a, a pardon unless you did something wrong? You don't ask. It's, it's like, you know, but you have to understand who these people are. Mike Flynn, the the one thing that nations across this world have envied about the U.S. and it started with George Washington, a peaceful transfer of power. There are countries that have rarely accomplished that across the globe. And we've been a steady guide in that for more than 200 years. And Donald Trump was the first president. And it was a question I asked him on September 23rd of 2020, six weeks before the election. He's the first president in our history to personally say he would not respect to peaceful transfer of power. And you've got Mike Flynn, a former general, taking the fifth rather than believing, you know, saying he believes in a peaceful transfer of power. These people are dangerous. And if you don't think that the U.S. is at war with itself, that's what they want you to think. But we are, because the simple fact of the matter is either we're a nation of anarchy and, and men or a nation of law. And what you're seeing in these hearings is a desperate and and very methodical approach by uh, Republicans and Democrats to return us to normal and make us a state of laws. If you've noticed, it's the Republicans that are testifying. These aren't Democrats. 
They're, these are all Republicans, and they're trying desperately to save their party and our country. They are indeed putting their country before their party, and for that, they all should be commended. Uh, another name that came up an awful lot in the testimony yesterday was uh, one Jim Jordan. Are you surprised by that? <laughs> Jimbo? No, nothing that that idiot does would surprise any of us. Um, he has look. He he. The thing about these hearings, if you look at them, they're an extension of what happened when. Um, well, it goes back to Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen, his his former Trump's former fixer, testified before Congress, and all the same players were involved in that, trying to to besmirch him and to denigrate him. That are denigrating this process and and denigrating the idea that there was a, a, an insurrection. And of course, Jim Jordan was one of them. But if you remember in 2019, it was uh, Cohen who came forward and said, look, I made a mistake and you all are making the same mistake. Do not follow this man. If you do, I fear that in 2020, during the election, during a reelection, that he would start a war rather than give up power. That was it's prophetic. And believe me, Michael Cohen is no prophet. But it, it that was uh, he knew Donald Trump and he knows Jim Jordan and he knows these people that are involved. And he told them, don't make the mistake he made. You'll pay for it. Jim Jordan is going to probably pay for his mistake and he might be indicted as well. Uh, one of the quotes uh, from uh, the, the testimony about uh, Meadows was uh, it's going to get really, really messy, uh, which, uh, again, some people have extrapolated means, well, they knew there were arms there. And of course, Trump's edict to you know take away the the metal detectors and let those people in, uh, and the fact that he basically wanted a, a ride over to the Capitol building so he could lead the insurrection. Uh, just picture that in your mind for a couple of seconds. It's it, oh this yes, is, this this was not <laughs> this was not ad lib. This was this was something that was thought out and planned. Maybe not planned well, but planned. It was planned, and it, it they tried the thing that fell down for them, and there were there were enough people who would not follow the plan. You know, when he said, uh, just call the election corrupt and let me and the Republican Congress take care of the rest, they didn't do it. Those people didn't fall down for him. On the day of the insurrection, this young lady, Cassidy uh, Hutchinson, didn't fall down for him. There were others that stood up to him. It's always amazing to me how many people didn't. And, you know, he's, you mentioned that he needed a ride to the Capitol. I guarantee you that if the Secret Service had said it's it's uh, not safe enough to, to put you in a car you'll have to walk there that none of this would have happened because Donald Trump doesn't like to walk anywhere unless there's a golf cart nearby. So, um, that what happened after that, getting the ride and him being angry and trying to lunge at his secret. Sir, I, like I said, I, I couldn't write that in a, in a it, you, it defies, it's not even comedy or satire at this point. It's just theater of the absurd. Uh, Watergate, I, I know and I only got about a minute left, turned when John Dean testified about a number of the things about the tape conversations, et cetera. And even the two strongest Republicans on that committee, Howard Baker and Lowell Weicker, said, all right, that's it. You know, we, we got to bring the hammer down on this guy. Is any This should have been that day uh, with this. Is it going to follow through? Are the Republicans actually going to throw their hands up? I mean, th there's already some stories about them leaving Trump and going to, to Abbott now to, as their nominee in, in the next couple of years. Uh, well, but is this going to go ahead? Yeah, no, this is pro I, I would think of it more of as an Alexander Butterfield moment. Butterfield was the guy who oh, testified. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's tapes. There's plenty of tapes. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what this kind of really is. The John Dean moment. 
I, maybe came earlier and and was not seen, but that that is Cohen and and some of that. I mean, we've look, we've known who Donald Trump is for the last five years, and people have because of their because they've used him as a useful fool to get what they want. And I'm talking about Mitch McConnell and the corrupt uh, uh, Supreme Court that he was able to get through. Everyone used Donald Trump to their own end, so they propped him up, and now that they don't need him. Bill Barr propped him up and then and sold him down the river. I mean, Donald Trump is is notorious for throwing people under the bus. Bill Barr's better than him, threw him under the bus before Trump could do it to, to Barr. I, I think you will, in the succeeding weeks, see people say, well, look, enough is enough. This guy's done. And uh, with any luck, he will be. But the real danger to this country is not Donald Trump. It's Trumpism. And it's the exactly. cancer that's already spreading. Brian, always great to get your perspective. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Anytime, my brother. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Nuclear energy is still going to be part of the grid and start of our, our part of our process for a long time to come. But what do we do with the nuclear waste? It's been an ongoing problem in Ontario, and we may be close to a solution. We'll tell you about that just after 11.30 this morning. Right now, as we told you earlier in the program, uh, G7 leaders and uh, have wrapped up their meeting, and now the NATO leaders, are, leaders rather, are in Madrid, Spain, uh, to have their meeting. And, of course, this discussion here about troop movements, of course, what's happening in Ukraine, and each country's commitment to this. Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is defending Canadian military spending as the new NATO report shows that this country is actually falling further behind from the alliance's targeted level. Uh, ahead of the NATO meeting, which uh, got underway this morning, of course, Trudeau says that Canada has repeatedly proven its commitment to the alliance. We announced significant investments in NORAD modernization, in new equipment, including fighter jets uh, for the Canadian military, because we know how important it is to step up, and we will continue to do so to make sure that the world knows that it can count on Canada to be part of advancing the cause of democracy, the rule of law, and opportunities for everyone. Uh, that number that uh, that they keep talking about here, about the percentage of gross domestic product, is going to keep coming back here. And got, I'm sure it's going to be talked about an awful lot today when they all get together and start their meetings. So what role does Canada have to play going forward here with NATO? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Marcus Colga. Marcus is the director of disinfowatch.org and also a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Marcus, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on, Bill. Talk to us about this this commitment, uh, the the this military spending, defense commitment uh, that the Canada always seems to be on the short end of. Yeah, well, NATO has prescribed a two uh, percent of GDP spending guideline for all NATO members. That means that um, each NATO member uh, should be spending two percent of its GDP. Uh, on defense-related, you know, whether it's equipment, various different missions and such. Um, and, uh, and Canada is, as you mentioned earlier, it's, it's been sort of on the back end of that. Um, it hasn't quite met its, uh, its 2% commitment over the past number of years. And indeed, uh, this year with this report that just came out, it seems that Canada is, is really on the tail end of, of that scale and is among, uh, you know, unfortunately, sort of the, the laggards, uh, if you will, of, of NATO when it comes to, uh, comes to spending. Um, you know, we have, as, as the Prime Minister noted in, in that clip, that Canada has uh, committed to uh, purchasing new aircraft. It has now, just this past week, committed to upgrading NORAD. 
Um, so those those spending commitments will certainly uh, boost those numbers in the next year. Um, and I think the numbers that we're talking about right now sort of reflect more of what uh, the spending was like last year before this inv- the invasion of Ukraine happened. Uh, and I think the sort of the the geopolitical and security um, picture has has changed obviously dramatically over the past five months. So um, again, the the numbers that we're seeing in in that NATO report aren't necessarily reflecting the current reality. But um, but what is clear is that Canada does need to step up its uh, commitment to defense and and spending on defense so that we're not seen as as one of the laggards uh, within NATO. And, um, you know, I think one of the more uh, striking um, uh, announcements uh, with regards to spending during the uh, the past couple of days at this NATO conference is that um, Canada has tried to, is is pitching to host uh, NATO's Defense uh, Innovation Accelerator. This is a, a new institution within NATO that will um, sort of uh, boost uh, research into defense-related products, uh, tech-related uh, equipment, and that sort of thing. What's truly remarkable is that Canada has been pitching hard to host this this uh, institution in you know either Toronto or Ottawa, but uh, unlike uh, many other NATO members who have committed to funding it, uh, Canada has yet to do that. So, um, you know, I think Canada really needs to start uh, putting more focus on defense, defense spending. Uh, going forward to uh, to keep up with our with our NATO partners, the concern here it's you know when you look at the broader picture though, and you and I talked about this I think a couple of weeks ago, is uh, the report from the uh, the chief budget officer and the auditor that uh, for us to meet that target, uh, the government commitment would be astronomical on an annual basis. I mean, for us to do this, and this is a government that is also committed to economic recovery post pandemic. Uh, there are only so many dollars. Are we willing and able? To, to make that commitment because uh, something else is going to have to suffer or we're all going to have to uh, just understand that that's going to have to be a priority. And I'm not so sure this government's ready to do that. Yeah, good point, Bill. I mean, essentially right now, what Canada would need to do in order to meet that 2% commitment is essentially double uh, the amount of, of uh, federal funds that we're, we're committing to, to defense spending. And that's, that's a heck of a lot of money. Um, there are ways that, uh, that we can do this. Um, you know, Canada, uh, announced uh, several months ago, and it's now being confirmed uh, over the past couple of days that Canada will host a, uh, a NATO Center of Excellence for Climate Change. This is a, n- a new institution within NATO that Canada will host and pay for to study the effects of climate change on security um, and apparently how NATO can reduce its carbon footprint, which is of course also important. But with um, you know with the the uh, rising temperatures. Uh, the uh, the threat in the Arctic uh, is is only going to grow with with the uh, ice that is melting, and so um, having this sort of an institution is really important, and that will help contribute to a boost in that funding. and And you know those dollars will remain here in Canada when we uh, when we do that. Um, you know I think with uh, this NORAD upgrading of the uh, NORAD uh, system, uh, a lot of those dollars will remain in Canada. So that's can- the Canadian government spending on defense, but but those dollars are going to remain in Canada. Um, beyond that, I mean, uh, these the new uh, fighters that we've announced, uh, that's that's going to represent a significant uh, increase in, in our defense spending. Um, and so I guess we'll just have to see where we're at um, in the next day, year or two with those commitments uh, and and see how much further we, we need to go. But I think with with those spending commitments, we'll we'll certainly at least move a little bit closer to the two percent commitment that uh, 
that we agreed to uh, with NATO already years and years ago. And, and I think a lot of Canadians would be supportive of the initiatives you just talked about. But uh, I, the message we got from, from the G7 meeting earlier this week, and certainly we're hearing from, from NATO already, they're only a few hours into the meeting, is that, look, the Ukrainian war is going to go on for some time. Don't expect a fast solution to this. Uh, we're going to have to be in this. We've committed to it for the long haul. That's going to be more money. And as, as you know, Marcus, they just made a commitment for more boots on the ground, not in Ukraine, but, of course, surrounding it on the frontiers around there. Uh, yep. it, it, a show of force, essentially, to show Russia that, look, it stops here. Uh, and Canada is going to have to be involved in that, too. Uh, and that's that's bodies as opposed to, you know, buying new jets and things of this nature. How, how do we how do we meet that sort of commitment, that, which may be getting larger as time goes on? Well, great point, Bill. I mean, that commitment, when we send our troops and our equipment over to Latvia, and that's where they are right now, we have thousands yeah. of troops there as part of uh, NATO's tripwire mission that will, that's, you know, hopefully going to deter any future aggression against uh, our, our Eastern NATO allies. Uh, that also is a contribution towards that 2% commitment. So, um, you know, I think everyone benefits, NATO, Canada, um, certainly our, you know, our NATO partners uh, are, are going to benefit from from an increased troop deployment uh, to the Baltic uh, Sea region. Uh, you know, I think that we, you know, obviously we need to increase those numbers. We need to continue increasing those numbers. And, um, you know, I think, the, you know, the Baltic states, what they're calling for is, is a permanent, um, uh, a permanent uh, presence, NATO presence, including Canadian presence in the Baltic states. And, and, uh, and that's something that's going to, you know, be, required as we move forward it doesn't seem that vladimir putin is going to go anywhere um he's changed his own constitution allowing him to remain in power until 2036 and so i think that the you know what we need to anticipate and expect is that these cycles of conflict will only continue uh, over the next decade so ensuring that we have a strong presence uh, in those countries to stop vladimir putin from from engaging in further aggression is is really necessary. It's it's necessary for the defense of our NATO allies of NATO itself, and uh, and Canada's defense as well. We we need to remember that uh, we have a very long Arctic coastline. Uh, Russia has been uh, has been milit rapidly militarizing its own Arctic region over the past uh, decade or so, and with those uh, that melting ice, uh, there's a, there's a real significant threat there too. So you know, doing all that we can to, number one, help Ukraine push, uh, that's the priority, is pushing Russia back beyond Ukraine's borders, but then uh, ensuring that those that uh, Putin doesn't engage in that sort of aggression in, in uh, against NATO's eastern partners is, is of the utmost priority. Well, what about NATO's, what about Russia's Scandinavian partners? Because, you know, at that meeting table yeah. uh, today, Sweden and Finland are represented there. Uh, they both want in. And uh, we already know that Putin said that's, that's not going to happen. We don't want to see that happen. Uh, do they move ahead with this anyway? Strategically, it makes all kinds of sense for NATO to, to bring them in. There's no doubt. They're definitely moving ahead with this. Uh, you know, uh, they've all pretty much been accepted into NATO. Right now, there's a, there's a ratification process that's going to have to take place to make sure that all the member states uh, agree to this. But uh, there, was a, there were a few sticking points with, with Turkey with regards to uh, some, uh, some Kurdish groups that were being sheltered in, in Sweden and Finland. Those sticking points have been overcome now. Uh, Turkey has signed a, a memorandum with uh, NATO, Sweden and Finland. Uh, and so that's a fait accompli. They are going to be in NATO. Uh, and, and this is one of the more surprising aspects. I mean, people, I think, uh, in, in those, those of us who keep an eye on security issues, we're, 
were a little bit concerned that uh, that these issues would not be overcome and that uh, that might deter uh, you know the accession process for for Sweden and, and Finland, but it hasn't. Um, and what this does is this sends a, an extremely strong signal to Vladimir Putin, who has spent pretty much the past twenty years or so trying to pull apart NATO, to fracture us, to pull apart the cohesion within that uh, the transatlantic alliance. Um, it's more united than ever, and it's so united that you have these two countries, Finland and Sweden, who have um, been neutral for the better part of the past hundred years. Finland has bent over backwards to make sure that it does not provoke Russia. Um, the fact that these two countries are now well on their way to joining NATO uh, sends a message to Vladimir Putin that uh, the Western world will not stand for his kind of aggression, and uh, and that uh, his efforts to split us apart and uh, undermine our alliances isn't working. And so uh, uh, I think it's a very good day for NATO and for Canada to, to embrace these two Nordic countries into the, uh, into the NATO family. A uh, little bit of time left. I want to ask you about one of the other comments as well. Uh, just, just swing back to, to Ukraine, if we could, for a second, Marcus. Uh, yeah. There are some folks at the table here at this meeting in Madrid that are suggesting that one of the things we need to do before we break up this time is uh, develop some sort of an exit strategy uh, for Ukraine. Is, is that a little premature at this stage? It's completely immature. The only exit strategy that we should be looking at is one in which uh, Ukraine is able to achieve a strategic victory over Vladimir Putin, that means pushing Russia's forces to, at the very least, back beyond uh, the borders that he his government violated on February 24th. Um, and then we can take a look at uh, what to do afterwards. But that's, that is the only exit right now that we can look at. There is no compromising with Vladimir Putin, and any suggestions of compromise with Vladimir Putin will only embolden him uh, down the road. Uh, you know, he may not attack other countries in the next few months, but when he uh, rebuilds his capacity to make war, he will engage in that sort of behavior again. So we need to do all that we can to make sure that he is defeated and, quite frankly, humiliated. He's a, he's a schoolyard bully who only understands power, and we need to sock it to him and give him a bloody nose in order to stop him. That's the only way out of this. Well, we should have learned that from Crimea, shouldn't we? And, and, and let's keep in mind as well, this, this is not the first time he's invaded Ukraine. Uh, so you know you, you've got to draw a line in the sand at some place. Yeah, and I, you know we 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 always look to 2014, but but uh, this guy has been this guy Vladimir Putin has been engaging in this sort of behavior since 2007. 2007, he tried to uh, provoke uh, a ethnic rioting in Estonia, um, and and the next year in 2008, of course, he invaded uh, the country of Georgia uh, during the Beijing Olympics. And so he's been doing this over and over again. And don't let's not forget, in, in 2016, he uh, pretty much successfully uh, interfered and disrupted uh, the U.S. electoral process and, and threatened to undermine U.S. democracy. Uh, and he's been doing this all over the world. And we've seen him trying to do this in Canada as well using the, uh, during, the, uh, during the COVID pandemic. So this guy, he continues to do this sort of thing over and over again. The, like I said, the only thing that he understands is power. And we need to stand up to them and we need to put a stop to it uh, in order to actually stop it. And, and it's, you know, concessions and, and uh, you know, giving way to Vladimir Putin will only embolden him. It won't stop him. Well, and uh, in light of what we've heard about the Russian incursions into the cities again and the, and the, the missile attacks that are going on right now, uh, this is, I, I think, the, you know, the message about this is going to 
you know, take some time is, is really ruling because, uh, again, Zelensky mentioned this morning, uh, they will not cede one uh, piece of land at all. Uh, there, there's no compromise here. Uh, and uh, do you feel that, that NATO is steadfastly behind that that mindset? Well, it, you know, it, it has to be, and we have to believe that they are. You know, I think that the uh, the declaration that was issued today by NATO that, that Russia is the most significant threat uh, to its members' peace is, you know, we have to we have to trust that. Um, and we have to trust that they, uh, that the leaders of these NATO nations have a moral conscience, that they truly uh, are appalled by the fact that while those G7 meetings were happening, when these NATO meetings were happening, Vladimir Putin was targeting civilians in Ukraine. Um, you know, the bombing, the, the missile attack against a shopping mall full of a thousand people, um, the uh, missile attacks over the weekend against uh, civilian infrastructure, apartment blocks in Kiev. And, and today we've heard that uh, more m Russian missiles have, have been targeting uh, Ukrainian uh, apartment buildings and civilian infrastructure. I mean, this, is, this speaks to the nature of, of Vladimir Putin and his, his mindset. And, uh, you know, you have to believe that these Western leaders uh, that we're meeting in, uh, in Madrid uh, over the past few days, recognize this and recognize, at least among some of them, that they could very well be next. And that the only thing that, uh, that, uh, that can stop Vladimir Putin is an increase of defensive weapons to Ukraine uh, among, and to other uh, Eastern NATO partners. Uh, that's the only way we can stop him. That's the only thing that Vladimir Putin will understand is, is basically uh, military power. And uh, that, that's, like I said, that's the only thing that will stop him. Uh, by the way, we should mention, uh, we're running late here, uh, but uh, two other guests at this meeting uh, in Madrid right now are the uh, Prime Minister of Japan and the uh, South Korean President, who are, I'm sure, the, delivering the message, hey, don't forget about China. So these guys are going to have to multitask. Busy times, lots going on, Marcus. Thanks for the time to come in and sort some of the stuff out for it. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Take care. Marcus Colgan, Director of Disinfo Watch and also a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. She is the uh, self-anointed Queen of Canada, that's what she calls herself, uh, and many people feel she's causing true harm to uh, many of her subjects. Uh, this all has to do with the sovereign citizen movement, and our next guest has studied this extensively, and uh, the so-called Queen of this movement, and uh, it's something that we need to know and be aware of. Uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program Christine Sycheski, who is an Associate Professor of Social Work and Criminology with Chatham University. Uh, professor, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, in this era of, of groups you know, that seem to be anti-government, anti-social, anti-just about everything else, uh, and, and a lot of the time we're just kind of saying, where do these people come from? It's, it's important that we understand uh, what's going on out there and, and listen to these people. I know it's, it's easy to be dismissive and just to say, well, those, they're just cranks. Uh, right. but they, they, cranks can cause problems and cranks can grow into something greater, can't they? Oh, yes, they can. I think that um, evidenced by the fact that the sovereign citizen movement that used to just be um, in only a few handful of countries has now moved on and we see them in at least 26 countries. Uh, so talk to us about this particular individual. This is Romana Dedulo, uh, who's a conspiracy influencer. She's, there's quite a CV there, really, isn't there? Yeah, uh, she believes uh, that it, she has many titles, um, including her belief that she is the Queen of Canada, uh, Queen of the Kingdom of Canada, and the President, Commander-in-Chief, and so forth. Yes, she has new titles all the time. And now Queen of the World. 
where does something like this come from? And, and I guess more importantly, how do they attract followers to, to their cause? I think in her case, um, the attraction is the promises she makes. Uh, she has made decrees, which she has said are basically laws, new laws in the uh, Kingdom of Canada, in which you know people no longer have to pay their utility bills. They no longer have to pay taxes. They will have free, you know, school, university will be free. Uh, so I think the attraction is a lot of, you know, it's enticing because there are a lot of things that people want and would love to have be true, but simply are not. So I, I, I suppose if, if you're looking at the chemistry of this, you've got somebody with, with these ideas and, and these you know promises that are being made. There has to be a willing uh, audience for this, and it, the tough economic times, the, the the pandemic, I would imagine, is all part of that mix, isn't it? It is. Um, I think, like the sovereign citizen movement in general, I think was able to spread so widely because, um, not of the pandemic per se, but I think because of the government regulations around the pandemic, and people, a certain group of people, are just like, I'm not following what the government says. The government is illegitimate, and you know, the sovereign citizen movement ideology provides that type of thinking, which says that the government is illegitimate. So it allows you to just basically do what you want. So we're angry already. Uh, and, and these groups come along, and including the one that we're talking about here, the sovereign citizen movement, and say, I've got the solution for you. And, but this is what we're going to do. Don't listen to them. They're, they're not even legitimate. Just listen to me and I'll, I'll, I'll get you on the path. Exactly. Exactly. So it's very enticing because it's like you don't have to do those things that you used to have to do or that everyone else has to do. You can go your own way now. Uh, you mentioned this movement is growing. It's a global movement. I and mean, we can talk about the, the individual, of course, Ms. Dedulo herself. Uh, but the fact that this is happening in other parts of the world, too, I think probably speaks to uh, the frustration that, that a lot of people are feeling right now and, and looking for leadership. And, and in many cases, I guess, at least in their own minds, uh, just simply not impressed with the leadership that's available to them. Yeah, unfortunately. And so the movement provides the idea that what, that their respective governments are illegitimate and that they can essentially make their own laws and, you know, go their own way, do what they want. So I think that is very appealing to some people. So how does it, let's, let's talk a little bit about the influence this is having in Canada. And I guess the question a lot of people have, especially Professor, when we see some of the things that are going on, well, we had the protest here in Ottawa in, in February. Uh, we're told there may be another one this well, Friday of Canada Day, we're certainly watching the, uh, the the investigation about the January 6th incident in 2021 in Washington. And and these splinter groups, as some people are characterizing them, seem to be playing a major role. Uh, you, you've studied this extensively and you've studied this movement extensively. Uh, should we be concerned? Should we be afraid? I'm concerned. Um, anytime you have people who do not, who stop believing in the legitimacy of the government, um, it it means that something is wrong in society where people can believe and just state outright that they're no longer going to follow the rules that we all have to follow. And so from the, ex, you know, the looking at it from a perspective of we need to be a civilized society, um, people who are deciding to go their own way is always concerning. Um, you know, people might be then looking to overthrow the government. That is very concerning. Has, has that kind of conversation going on? Uh, amongst uh, people who study uh, this movement uh, all the time. So there, there is a possibility of, of, of danger, not just to the system, but to individuals as well? 
Well, I think that, um, yeah, I think any time where people have decided to operate outside the government, meaning that they can do what they want, I think that's always a concern. And there have been instances where uh, sovereign citizens have um, engaged in violence. Uh, they particularly, um, it's a particular problem for um, police because um, they oftentimes interact with them because they no longer get their cars registered. They don't have driver's licenses. They make their own license plates. And so they end up getting pulled over more. And those traffic stops have led to deadly results for both the law enforcement officers and sovereign citizens themselves. But the, the, the interesting aspect of this is uh, because there are others that we've talked about in the past that, uh, you know, they just divorce themselves from society. You know, they don't want to pay taxes. They don't want to live on the grid, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, that, and that's all well and good, but they want to exist within that system. Uh, they just don't want to be contributors to it. Right. Yes. I mean, I, and that might be a different type of group. Uh, the thing with sovereigns is that they um, they then go forth and create their own version of laws um, or they create their own uh, documents that they're going to send to the court. Uh, so many so much so in some instances, uh, they are considered paper terrorists um, by the court because they are sending so many different, you know, self-created um, or templates they found on the Internet of court documents. Uh, are they're putting liens on um, people who have uh, cops who have filed charges against them or prosecutors who are attempting to prosecute them. So they're causing, you know, a lot of problems for a lot of people. And as you mentioned, it's easily done to be dismissive of these people. I mean, uh, according to your research, here, I mean, uh, she claims that the Chinese military has uh, clandestinely invaded uh, mm -hmm. secret underground tunnels that crisscross Canada. Uh, right. She's commanded her forces and cleared those tunnels of the Chinese communists. Uh, and you thought, okay, that's that's somebody who's just a, little, just a little off the beaten track. But you put that group together with somebody who may be a little more militant and, and, and anti-establishment, anti-government, uh, and, and all of a sudden you've got a, a combination there that, that can be somewhat problematic. Yeah, I mean, the risk is always somebody engaging in violence. I mean, we can't predict the future. We don't know. But when someone has a particular attitude about the government and they might feel pushed to a certain point, you never know what they can do. And that's always the concern. So uh, are authorities dealing with this? Are they tracking this? What's, what's, what's their responsibility and what's their attitude towards these groups? Um, I know, I believe that the federal governments of respective countries are very aware of these groups, especially, you know, in Canada with the Freedom Convoy and them returning. Um, so they are tracking them. I, I don't know to what extent um, they are, but is my understanding that they are. And, and as you say, I mean, if they're found to be, you know, not compliant with the laws, whether it's driver's licenses, whatever, also paying taxes, uh, they are still part of the system. I mean, they will be prosecuted. Absolutely. They always are. So there's that element to it as well, which may only irritate, I guess, people even more so if they feel they're true believers in this system. Is there right. is there a concern at the stage, Professor, that with the, the current state of affairs right now globally and and probably, you know, right up our neighborhoods now, too, that these numbers are going to grow? I mean, the, the estimate I saw here was, what, 65,000 so far uh, of followers and, and, and growing? Yeah, in her group, she has about um, yeah sixty five thousand followers. Um, she's just one type. I mean, there's many other groups. Um, so she's a an interesting individual in the sense that she 
um, crosses a lot of lines. She might engage in sovereign citizen ideas. She's part of QAnon ideas. She's sort of a new age spirituality. Um, but then there are so many other groups across the country um, and other countries where they have their own sort of variation of sovereign citizen ideas. So there's quite a few splinter groups, if you will, or ideas out there that people are um, believing in. But as you say, that one cell over in in one country and another in another. The, but are there some commonalities among them? I mean, they're they're going to have different priorities, of course, depending on their circumstance. Sure. I mean, I think the thing, the through line, is the idea that they believe that their respective countries or their governments, excuse me, are illegitimate. Uh, and that's the commonality among there. Uh, how far are they willing to go, though? I mean, we had the protests. We've seen what's happened, of course, in Washington. We've seen it happen in other cities around the world in the last little while. Is is this a growing movement, a concerning movement right now uh, to simply, you know, not, not just to vote these people out of office, but to force them out of office? I mean, we heard some of the rhetoric, of course, in February that they wanted the, the, the prime minister to resign. And, uh, and this group uh, wanted to take, they said they were going to work with the, the governor general, I think it was, to govern the country. Uh, and again, some people may dismiss that as just, oh, come on, that's just unrealistic. But right. in their heart of hearts, they believe that they can do this. They do. And that's the thing is that they really believe in these ideas and um, even can be indignant when they are called upon or arrested for something. And so I think it just shows you the degree to which they believe in these ideas. And that, I think, is, is a concern. And as you mentioned in, in your essay, the other thing to you, too, is uh, the followers themselves uh, have to be considered in a situation like this. I mean, they're, they're, they're buying into this thing, hook, line, and sinker, uh, and they could do so at their own well, physical peril, because I know she's an anti-vaxxer, uh, right. and she's also said that uh, it's, it's, she's, well, explain, maybe there's one element that's jumped out, uh, that she can cure people uh, with uh, what they call med bed. What's that all about? Yeah, that's a conspiracy idea that uh, has been hanging around for, you know, last few years. Um, but the, she basically tells her people that there are these magic um, beds, essentially, they're capsules that I've seen photos of these supposed beds, uh, in which they can it can cure all ailments. Uh, so you know, cancer, anything you can think of, it can regrow limbs. Um, it can do all these magical things, um, and people are awaiting these magical celestial chambers. I mean, she said recently that they are from the celestial beings, and her role is to make sure that everyone has access to them uh, and that they're not monetized. So she believes she has a sort of a higher or higher power uh, has, you know, basically said to her, help cure these people. Um, so... Yeah, that's an idea. I think that's a, a strange one, but it's a worrisome because I do see some people sort of waiting for these beds uh, to arrive. As opposed to seeking medical attention that might actually improve their situation. Yeah, that's the concern that somebody would say, hey, I'm going to put off my treatment uh, and wait for these med beds. It's, uh, you know, that are not, that are unfortunately not coming. And you know, there's, there's an obvious concern here for some of these people as well. I mean, if you don't pay your taxes, uh, or don't think you need to make mortgage payments anymore, or you don't want to pay your utility bills, uh, you're putting yourself in a deep financial hole. I mean, or have the, the utilities cut off altogether. Uh, you know, saying you're a believer in this is not going to give you a free pass into this. It is not. And people, we have seen people uh, will post uh, letters they've received from 
uh, lawyers threatening, saying their house is going into foreclosure, um, people posting, okay, this is your final day to pay your water bill. You're going to lose your, your water tomorrow. And, and people are saying, I'm doubling down. I'm going to send the company uh, Romana's uh, royal decrees, her cease and desist letters. They are doubling down. They continue to believe that these things will help and they never have worked. It's never worked once. I, I was intrigued to, to read this because, I mean, and, and again, I tend to be skeptical with a lot of this stuff, but I understand that there are some people uh, that uh, in, in desperation, I guess, uh, and in their fervor to try to find, uh, you know, the, the, the truth, that's the phrase they use an awful lot of the time, uh, they'll do almost anything. I mean, the worst kind of scenario, of course, was was uh, drinking the Kool Aid with Jim Jones many years right. ago. Uh, but people willingly did that, trusting him, and th right. and they seem to. That's what she seems to be doing here too, is trying to uh, engender that trust once again that they will do anything and say anything that she desires. And they do. That's the surprising thing. I mean, I'm always surprised by how much they really believe in her ideas that they will go so far as to send, you know, uh, lawyers and courts and utility companies her cease and desist letters or her royal decrees and be shocked when those people do not say, okay, you don't have to pay your bills anymore. So they really do believe in her ideas. They, they gain hope from her. Um, they really do believe in her. Have you seen this before? Is this a, a new phenomenon over the last uh, generation or so? Or have, have variations on this theme been around for some time? Variations have um, been um, for some time. I think we can look back and see other examples of this. Throughout history, and, and I, I just wanted the correlation of you know, top, top economic times. And I agree with you, but when I mention pandemic, I don't mean the pandemic. I mean the the, the, the results of the pandemic, you know, the locked up, the, the what some, some people consider to be uh, over restrictive uh, rules and regulations that were put in place, uh, shutting things down. You can't go right. here, you have to wear a mask, etc., like that. Uh, we've seen that before, and we've seen people that have rebelled about that, well, vaccinations and, and mask wearing, etc. That seemed to be the foundation for an awful lot of the people in February that descended upon Ottawa. Uh, right. But they don't take it to this level. Is, is there a, a missing element here that takes people to this extreme? That's a good question. I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, you mentioned we've seen some of this historically. I mean, I think maybe the difference is, is that between then and now is that people can access this information on the internet. They can find templates for mm, things yeah. that they can send, like tangible things they can do and send. Um, and so, and I, and I do think people are upset about the mandates. And so the, in general, the sovereign citizen movement provides something for them. You know, here's a template you can send your employers uh, to explain why you don't have to, uh, you know, get vaccinated or something along those lines. It's an interesting read, and uh, and again, as I say, it's something that uh, that we need to be aware of because uh, well, we're hearing more about them, and uh, they may pop up again, maybe in Ottawa this weekend too. Uh, yeah. Professor, thank you so much for the work uh, on this, and thank you so much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. Thank. You. You, you too. Uh, Professor uh, Christine Sarcheshi from uh, Chatham University talking about the uh, sovereign citizen movement. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.